Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you will get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today and become a member and immediately become connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. And be sure to add Casting Through Ancient Greece in the How Did You Hear About Podgo section of the application. It begins as a whisper, a promise. The lightest of breezes dances upon the death cries of 300 men. That breeze became a wind, a wind that my brothers have sacrificed, a wind of freedom, a wind of justice, a wind of vengeance. Lena Headey, who plays the part of Queen Gorgo. Hello, I'm Mark Selig, and welcome back to Casting Through Ancient Greece, episode 25, 300. Rise of an Empire Against the Sources. We are back again with another look at a movie depicting events of the Greek and Persian Wars. This time we will be looking at the follow-up to 300. 300 Rise of an Empire. So once again we will take a short break from the narrative we have been following to look at how this second film compares to what is found in the Greek sources. Just about all of what is presented in this film we have covered so far in our historical episodes with a large part of it focused on the last three episodes I have done. I must admit I was a little unsure if I was going to look at this film, as personally I found it nowhere near as good as the first 300 film. But you, the listeners, wanted to see it covered, so here we are. Plus we are not going to do a film review, but we're looking at how much of the Greek sources were pulled upon to depict historical events in the movie. I will take much the same approach as I did with our look at 300, moving through the film as events unfold, while also taking general themes and discussing those when appropriate. This movie covers events over a larger expanse of time, but that should not affect the flow of the episode. I'm going to say up front that this film really stretches a lot of the accounts in the historical record, and even completely ignores some of them. This will see me spending more time trying to set the record straight than what had to be done last time around. But again, for someone who has a limited knowledge of Greek history and wondering how accurate the depiction is, This will hopefully give you a better understanding of the battles and events surrounding them. My hope is to also show you how interesting the actual history behind the episode is and motivate people to pick up a copy of Herodotus' histories and hear it from someone who was actually living a generation after the fact. Though I would encourage anyone with a slight interest in Greek history to pick up Herodotus' work. My aim with the episode is pretty much the same as what it was with the first 300 film. I'm going to focus on the events depicted in the movie and compare how they are presented to what is found in the ancient Greek sources. I'll also look at certain themes that seem to be followed throughout the film and how accurately depicted they are based on what comes through in the sources, or are they just presented more for the benefit of a modern day audience. I want to avoid focusing on small things such as equipment and how historical the dress is. I think there is already a huge amount to cover by just focusing on the events and themes. Hopefully by the end, for those who are not well versed in this period of history, you will walk away with a better understanding of what unfolded according to the historical record. Though, I will also be pointing out what aspects in the film have been carried over from the historical accounts, and put to good use. In addition, I would encourage those who have not been following my series to go back and listen to the episodes covering the Greek and Persian Wars, as this will give you a good grounding in the events this film is going to cover. 
Let's now take a look at the film we're going to be focusing on for this episode. Like the title suggests, this is 300 Rise of an Empire. It was released in 2014 and directed by No Morrow, with Zack Snyder, the director of the last 300 movie, as producer and writer this time around. Rise of an Empire is a sequel to the first 300 movie, so there will be some characters from that film that will be making an appearance once again, such as Xerxes, Gorgo and Dilios. This time around though, the naval battles of Artemisium and Salamis will be the main focus of the film, while also travelling back to the Battle of Marathon for some backstory. The naval battle of Artemisium is thought to have occurred on the same days that the fighting at Thermopylae occurred. The Rise of an Empire subtitle also points to this movie being focused on the Athenians rather than the Spartans. The Athenians would, after the Persian Wars, go on to establish what would be known as the Athenian Empire as a consequence of the Greek and Persian Wars. Their power being established in the navy they produced and their success at sea during the war against the Persians. The movie will also be focused on a main character throughout the story, much like 300 was with King Leonidas. This time around, it will be the leader of the Athenian forces, the general Themistocles. Once again, the main inspiration for the movie has come from one of Frank Miller's comics, Xerxes. But we'll be focusing on the film compared to the sources. Also, the film takes the same approach as 300, the story being narrated by a Spartan, this time though by Queen Gorgo, as she addresses a group of Spartans aboard a trireme, that being a Greek warship. Like I have said, we'll be comparing the depiction of the film against what can be found in the ancient Greek sources, in much the same manner as last time. For the most part, we will be dealing with the same historians, with Herodotus being our most cited source since his histories deal with this entire period in greater detail than any other source. Though, we'll also be turning to Plutarch, drawing upon his biographies of Themistocles and Aristides, who were leading figures during these times. We will also draw on Diodorus Siculus, who composed a history dealing with Greece from mythical times through to the successes of Alexander, though he was writing between 60 and 30 BC, nearly 500 years after the battles, and in less detail on the particular events that we are looking at. To supplement these, we'll also call on Thucydides and Xenophon, who make references to this period when dealing with later conflicts. Other writers, not of history, but of plays and poetry, will also make an appearance as we move through the storyline. So, with all that out of the way, let's now dive into the film and see how it compares against our sources. 300 Rise of an Empire begins with its opening scene, where 300 pretty much finished up at the Pass of Thermopylae. We see the Spartans laying dead, with Leonidas's lifeless body in the centre of the shot. Xerxes on horseback rides up with a large double-headed axe, bringing it down onto Leonidas, just as the shot ends. We also hear our narrator for this film, Gorgo, Leonidas' wife, saying, The oracle's words stand as a warning, a prophecy. Sparta will fall, all of Greece will fall, and Persian fire will reduce Athens to cinder. This then takes us to a burning Athens with Xerxes standing on the Acropolis, holding Leonidas' severed head. And Gorgo's words continue. For Athens is a pile of stone and wood, cloth and dust, and as dust will vanish into the wind, only the Athenians themselves will exist. Only stout wooden ships can save them. This then closes out with the shipbuilders working on triremes, before then bringing the scene to Gorgo addressing the Spartans aboard a ship, which will later be revealed as her addressing before the Battle of Salamis, the climax of the film. But here we're getting some context to the film as she describes what started the war and how it was 10 years ago 
that the war would begin. This is also setting up the film to focus not on Sparta as much this time around, but on the Athenians. But do keep in mind, we still have a Spartan narrator telling the story to other Spartans. We have a bit in the opening here to deal with, so let's start from the top. As we saw in our look on 300, Leonidas had not died fighting in the last stand back within the pass. Rather, he'd been killed in the fighting outside the pass. Granted, the Spartans had been able to recover his body and could have brought it back into the pass, but the movie had presented Leonidas as being the last Spartan to have died fighting with the last stand. We also hear that after the battle, Xerxes had Leonidas's head cut off, with Herodotus saying, Xerxes went over the battlefield to see the bodies, and having been told that Leonidas was king of Sparta and commander of the Greek force, ordered his head be cut off and fixed on a stake. The lines that Gorgo narrates over the scene, referring to the oracle, seem to be mashing up the oracles both Athens and Sparta received into a very simple couple of lines. We have gone over what both these said in both the historical episodes, and our episode on 300. But, firstly, the oracle received by the Spartans basically gave it an ultimatum. Either a king of Sparta would die, or Sparta itself would be destroyed. So with Leonidas dead, it would now appear, according to Apollo, Sparta was safe. The first oracle Athens would receive painted a very dark picture, which gave the impression that all was lost and Athens would burn. Athens would in fact be captured and burnt to the ground, which we see happening in the opening scenes. Though we have no account of Xerxes standing on the burning Acropolis, holding Leonidas's decapitated head. Gorgo's words then talking of Athens itself being an object that can be destroyed, but the Athenians themselves will live on, seems to be tied up in the notion that appears in the sources just before the Battle of Salamis. Herodotus has, during a debate on the course of action the Greeks should take, the Corinthian commander suggesting the Athenians should not have any say in matters, as they no longer had a city. In the account, Themistocles is then to retort that so long as Athens had 200 warships in commission, she had both a city and a country much stronger than theirs. We find much the same sentiment also presented in Plutarch's work when doing his biography on Themistocles when describing the same incident. This is also probably trying to draw on the point that the ideals that the Athenians would be recognised with, freedom and democracy, are far larger than the structures of a city. Finishing the sequence off with the construction of triremes and how these were Greece's last hope makes no mistake that this time around, 300 will be focusing on naval battles. These being the only thing that can save them is also tied up in the second oracle, Herodotus reports, Athens receiving, which has the line, that the wooden wall only shall not fall, but help you and your children. The Athenian leader Themistocles would go on to argue that the wooden wall referred to was the fleet of triremes Athens possessed, of which he had been the major advocate of Athens' shipbuilding policy. Lastly, Gorgo being present on a trireme before the battle addressing the Spartan soldiers does not make an appearance in any of our sources. After Thermopylae and the death of Leonidas, we do not hear of her in any context again, though for this film she's to be our narrator and she now takes us back 10 years to the Battle of Marathon where she says, 10 years ago this war began with a grievance. Darius, annoyed at the notion of Greek freedom, has come to bring us to heel. Here we are pretty much on good ground, as Marathon was in fact 10 years earlier. Amazing that a stylized Hollywood movie can get its timelines right, yet a History Channel documentary on Marathon can't. Anyway, also Darius was the king of Persia at this stage, and had ordered a campaign against Greece. I also find it interesting 
the words she uses ring closely to the opening of Herodotus' work, where he tries to explain the origins of the quarrels between the Greeks and the barbarians, leading up to the Greco-Persian wars. Though with that said, let's see how the Battle of Marathon is treated. As the scene begins, we see a storm raging over the Bay of Marathon. We hear that the Persian forces outnumber the Greek force by three to one. The Greeks are charging down to the shore where the Persian ships are, and we are told they attack them as they disembark before they can establish a camp. We also see the commander and architect of the victory at Marathon as being the Athenian leader, Themistocles. Okay, so let's straighten a few things out here before we continue on with the scene. A storm at the time of the battle is not brought up anywhere, and it seems like it would be something unlikely omitted from the accounts, as storms were often a sign of some sort of omen, especially before a battle. As for the disparity in numbers, this is pretty close to what most modern historians suggest, with the Greeks around 10 to 11,000 against some 26,000 Persians. The ancient sources, though, are a little bit more out there. Herodotus doesn't give us an actual figure, but the poet Simonides reportedly puts the Persian force at 200,000. Though this is where the film departs from the historical account. Herodotus, who is one of our only sources, or at least gives us the most complete account on the battle, tells us that the Persians had disembarked and been assembled into position. Once the Greeks arrived in force at Marathon, both the armies faced one another for a number of days before the decision was taken by the Greeks to attack. With the Persians have been put in the field at Marathon for a number of days, it would be most likely that they would have set up a camp to support the forces, which seems to have been a normal practice when the Persians deployed in the field. The Greeks being depicted as charging down at the Persians would seem to be drawing upon what appeared to be an unusual practice in hoplite warfare, or enough so for Herodotus to have commented on it. He says at the opening of the battle, The word was given to move, and the Athenians advanced at a run, towards the enemy not less than a mile away. Now for the question of leadership on the side of the Athenians. As you can probably tell already, this film is focusing on the figure of Themistocles. Though, the only reference in the sources on him being at Marathon exists in Plutarch's work on the life of Aristides. It is hard to believe that Herodotus would have left out his role at Marathon, since he does write a fair bit about him in his histories. With this said, it is thought that Themistocles would have been most likely present as he would have been the right age and class in society. He may have held a position of command, as Plutarch suggests, but it's difficult to confirm, with this only source being some 600 years after the battle. Our sources record two Athenian leaders who take up the leading role at Marathon. The first was Callimachus, who was the overall leader or polymarch, and would end up being killed in the battle. The other man is a name Miltiades who in Herodotus' account is presented as the architect of the Athenian victory at Marathon. He ends up convincing the rest of the Greek generals to give battle when decision had been divided, and importantly, convincing Callimachus to come down on his side. Back in the film, the battlers join down at the shoreline, as the Persians are still disembarking men and horses from the ships. Gorgo's voice continues over the top of the fighting. Thousands dead, hundreds of their own, for an idea, an experiment. Athenian democracy. With the fight continuing, we are then shown the Persian king Darius aboard a trireme just off the bay, accompanied by his son Xerxes. Themistocles is presented with an opportunity and picks up a bow and arrow, firing it from the shore and striking Darius in the chest. Darius falls back into Xerxes' arms, with him glaring across the water at Themistocles with rage in his eyes, setting up the story for Xerxes' desire to conquer Greece and gain revenge. 
I feel the depiction of battle in the film is taking inspiration from the later stages of how it is described in the histories. The movie doesn't depict a typical hoplite formation, but has the Greeks charging as individual warriors. Herodotus says, Here again they were triumphant, chasing the routed enemy and cutting them down until they came to the sea, and men were calling for fire and taking hold of the ships. The casualties at Gorgo relates are for the most part technically correct. According to the ancient sources, the Greeks are reported to have lost 192 Athenians and 11 Plataeans, giving us our hundreds. While the Persians are supposed to have had 6,400 men killed, giving us our thousands. The sacrifice is presented as being for democracy, which is what Athens has come down to us as being famous for, it being one of the first places this new idea emerged. Although democracy would have evolved over a number of decades, as it didn't just spring up as a ready-formed idea. Though its beginnings are seen to have gone back to an Athenian named Solon, who introduced reforms, though perhaps a more recognisable form had started to take place under the leader Clythisthenes, only 18 years earlier. For the closing part of this scene, our sources show Darius had not even accompanied the forces for the campaign against Greece. He had remained in the Persian Empire and was most certainly not aboard a trireme during the Battle of Marathon. Themistocles would have not have been responsible for the death of Darius, as we hear that he would die some four years later back in the Empire, though from unknown causes. The last known letter he wrote dates to late 486 BC, and we are aware through Herodotus and documents originating from Babylon that he reigned for 36 years, which takes us back to when he overthrew a pretender on the throne in 522 BC. With the Battle at Marathon now fought and the Athenians victorious, we are now taken back to the Persian Empire at Persepolis, the Persian capital. Darius is laying on his deathbed, with the arrow Themistocles struck him with still in his chest. We hear that he now summons his greatest generals and advisors from across the empire, presumably to take revenge on the Greeks. We are now also introduced to our main villain of the film, Artemisia, who is presented as the greatest naval commander. Darius now takes his final words with his son Xerxes, warning him not to make the same mistakes he did, as only a god can defeat the Greeks. Artemisia is visibly annoyed at this advice, as she wants revenge on the Greeks, which we will see the reason for in a bit when we discuss her in more detail. Once Darius dies, she convinces Xerxes that his father's words were not a warning, but a challenge. He must become a god-king to challenge the Greeks, giving birth to Xerxes' godlike persona that was presented in the first 300 film. Xerxes then embarks on a journey where he goes through a transformation from being a man to a god, embracing the darkness within. Artemisia takes it upon herself to cleanse the palace of all Xerxes' trusted allies so that she will be the only one he can turn to for advice. We then end with Xerxes announcing war to his army, with Artemisia mouthing the exact same words, implying she was pulling the strings and manipulating Xerxes. As we have already pointed out, Darius had remained in the empire during the first invasion of Greece. He is thought to have died of an illness while preparing to launch a campaign against Egypt, who had revolted against Persian rule, though we do find reference that he was also preparing forces for another invasion of Greece. This would imply that commanders and advisors would have been summoned to prepare in the planning, though the planning probably focused on quelling the troubles in Egypt, an extremely important region for the Persian Empire. But Herodotus does indicate that these preparations were intended for revenge against Greece also. The character of Artemisia is introduced to us as being Persia's greatest naval commander. 
Artemisia is well attested to as a historical figure in the histories, but the film blows her role in the Greek and Persian wars way out of proportion. Herodotus is our main source regarding her, and for a good reason. One of the main reasons she existed in the historical record was the fact that she was the queen, or probably more accurately, the tyrant of the polis Palicarnassus. This also being the hometown of Herodotus, who would have grown up hearing her exploits as she was presented as the local hero of the past. Halicarnassus was in Anatolia and was subject to the Persians, so would have had to have provided men and ships when called upon. I think I will deal with Artemisia more fully when we reach her backstory in the film, where we can look at her as a whole, and how she is presented compared to what we actually know about her. I will just say for now, for someone who was presented as the greatest naval commander, we never see her placed in command of any of the Persian fleets at their battles. She would command the five ships that she brought with her from Halicarnassus, as well as some other cities in the region that provided ships. She would be one of many contingent commanders under the command of the Persian fleet commanders and ultimately Xerxes. Though, importantly, she stood out as a major break from the tradition being a woman commanding men at war in these times, also being another reason she enters the historical record. We also have here the theme once again of Xerxes presented as a god-king, which we explored in the episode on 300. It would appear that the Persian rulers didn't see themselves as gods, but great men given the divine right to rule over other men, so placing them above their subjects, but subject themselves to the gods, namely Ahura Mazda. But again, remember this is a story told by the Greeks to other Greeks. What they saw was a king who represented the greatest crisis the Greeks had faced, and would in their eyes attempt to defy the natural world, therefore the gods. He would bridge the Hellespont, and alter Greek lands cutting a canal through the peninsula of Mount Athos, so he could launch an invasion on Greek lands. In the Greeks' eyes, Xerxes would be seen to be committing one of the biggest crimes, that of hubris, that notion found all throughout Greek culture of excessive pride and defiance of the gods, which would lead to one's downfall. In this film, we are seeing the beginnings of Xerxes' transformation to a god-king, while also seeing Artemisia representing all of the powerful and influential women the Greeks saw occupying the Persian court, a constant notion presented in most Greek works relating to Persia. Herodotus talks of some of these women, such as Atossa, Xerxes' mother who was explained to have great influence in the court, and the main reason Xerxes succeeded the throne over his other siblings. While later on, we would hear of the violence Xerxes' wife, her mistress, would wield around court intrigue. How accurate these stories are is hard to tell, but we still have accounts that come down to us that seem to have been drawn upon to associate with the female villain within the Persian court. Film now moves to Athens, where news of another Persian invasion is being argued over, with emotions running high. Themistocles steps in to bring order and attempt the assembly to commit Athens' ships to the defence of Greece. He talks of the Persians attacking from the north and south and pointing them out on a map. Others argue that Athens should negotiate with Persia, with Themistocles referring to Persia as a tyranny and proposing Greece should fight as one nation. With his argument seeming to sway opinion, he then says all of Athens' ship should be sent to the northern coast of Euboea, while he goes and seeks help from Sparta. Herodotus' account shows that much debate was at hand on the question of how Athens should defend the city, based off the prophecies they had received. It wouldn't be until later where we hear of open talk of an Athenian suggesting submission to Persia be contemplated, this being after the Battle of Salamis but before the Battle of Plataea a year later. Though things didn't end well for the individual and his family who made this suggestion, with them being stoned to death for contemplating this course of action. 
Themistocles is presented as focusing on Athens' navy as being the key to the defence of Greece, which was one of the interpretations of the wooden wall in the prophecy they received. Themistocles had also been a driving force behind Athens building a navy after the first Persian invasion and the reason they now possess one of the largest fleets in all of Greece. His pointing out of the Persian attack coming from the north and south aligned more with the first Persian invasion rather than Xerxes. Xerxes' forces would march and sail following the coast north of Greece before descending into central Greece. The first invasion had a northern expedition coming through Thracian lands which ended in disaster after much of the Persian fleet being dashed against Mount Athos in a storm. Two years later, another expedition was sent island hopping across the Aegean, culminating in the Battle of Marathon. Themistocles now travels to Sparta after we see a short scene of Xerxes and Artemisia at the bridges of the Hellespont. Here we are seeing Athens attempting to gain the support of Sparta in the coming struggle with them sending their ships. It comes across that Sparta has already decided to defend the pass at Thermopylae, while Themistocles has already decided to send Athens' navy to Euboea, all of his negotiations being held with Gorgo. This notion of city-states taking their independent actions just as Xerxes was marching on Greece is not aligned with what is found in the sources. Once it was known that another invasion of Greece was in the works, all of the city-states that were willing to defend Greece met at what is known as the Conference of Corinth on the Isthmus. This group of city-states would later be known as the Hellenic League, of where there would end up being 31 different city-states and islands that would be members. They would set their differences aside while attempting to arrange more allies. As a group, they had initially decided to send a force to defend the Tempe Pass at Mount Olympus, but abandoned the position once it was discovered it was untenable. This then saw a more thought-out strategy with a land force of Leonidas and his 300 Spartans, along with 7,000 other Greeks sent to defend Thermopylae, while a combined naval force that would be commanded by the Spartan Eurybiades and which would include Spartan ships would be sent to Artemisium on the northern coast of Euboea. At least the film gets its location correct. As for Themistocles travelling to Sparta, we have no account of this until after the Battle of Salamis, where he is awarded for his role in the battle. Though, even if someone were to go to Sparta and seek counsel to discuss plans of war, it is almost certain Gorgo would not have been the one to talk to. Even though Leonidas is presented as being away, the second Spartan king, Leotychides, would have been present, and even then it probably would have been the ephors who would be listening to the proposal. As we move closer to the first naval battle scene, I want to first deal with two characters from the film. The first is Scylius, and then we'll look closer at Artemisia herself. We are first introduced to Scylius in his role as a Greek spy aboard Artemisia's ship, where he's acting as one of the crew. Before he is revealed, another Greek who had been taken captive is brought before Artemisia and described as being the bravest of the Greek captives. After a small exchange, Artemisia decapitates him before then shifting her focus to Scylius. Once his true identity is revealed, he then makes his escape jumping from the ship where he returns to Athens and meets Themistocles at his house to reveal what he had learnt, which then gives us Artemisia's backstory. Though before looking at that, let's look at what took place on Artemisia's ship. Even though the scene as depicted doesn't appear in any record, there are a few things present here that we can look at that seem to be drawn upon that do appear in our sources. The Greek captive seems to be drawn from an episode taking place just before the Battle of Artemisium, where a couple of Greek ships, acting as lookouts, are captured by the Persians. Here we hear of two notable Greeks from this action, one being described as the most handsome aboard the ship, 
so it was taken forward and his throat slit as a sacrifice. This supposedly was thought to bring the Persians good fortune for the coming campaign. The second fought with great tenacity and even after his ship was captured, he continued to resist until collapsing. The Persians though did not kill him but treated him and showed him great respect because of his bravery. So it would seem that the Greek captive is depicted as one of the men but suffers the fate of the other. Next we have Scylius. His inspiration seems to be drawn from the man named Sicinus, who is Themistocles' most trusted servant and attends to his children, while also using Herodotus' description of spies being sent to Sardis to gather information of the forces assembling. Sicinus, though, doesn't make an appearance in the historical account until just before the Battle of Salamis, where Themistocles has him deliver a message to Xerxes, so as to try and force the Battle of Salamis to take place. We also see from Herodotus that after the conference of Corinth, some men were sent on a mission to report on Xerxes' forces, but they were captured in the process. They were not executed though, but were given a tour of the Persian army to report back to the Greeks on, where they could reveal what was about to bear down on them. Ending this scene, we also see a reference to a storm approaching. This is the storm that Leonidas and his Spartans presumably saw in the first 300 movie, as they arrived at the pass. Though, as we saw, the storm wrecking many of the ships took place much further north, where they would not have seen it. Though in this film it is depicted as taking place around the same time it is presented in the sources, just before the Persian fleet arrives opposite the Greeks at Artemisium. Next, we are told of Artemisius' reason for wanting war against Greece. Scylius returns from his spying mission and meets Themistocles, where he reveals her past. In this, Artemisia watched her family raped and killed by Greek hoplites before being taken captive herself. She was kept as a prisoner on a slave ship before being discarded on the streets, where a Persian emissary finds her and takes her in. We then see her being trained up, where she is shown to have become one of Darius's most trusted commanders, with a scene closing with her bringing him heads of a number of kings and rulers. So let's now take a look at Artemisia and what the sources say about her. Herodotus is our main source here, with others seemingly to have borrowed from his work. As we have already pointed out, her appearance in the record most probably comes from the fact that she was the tyrant in Herodotus's hometown. Though how close is the film's depiction of her life compared to what he has to say? Firstly, we don't have any account of her family being murdered in front of her by Greek hoplites. On this point too, it seems a little too generic to put her desire for revenge over Greece in this event. As we have seen throughout the series, Greece was not a nation, and to those having experienced violence, what would have been important is what polis the perpetrators were from. This is where revenge would have laid. After all, the people of Halicarnassus were Greeks too. Herodotus says that she inherited the tyranny of Halicarnassus from her father after the death of her husband. She is then supposed to have, on her own free will, embarked on the campaign into Greece on account of her courage and sense of adventure, although she had a grown-up son that could have gone in her stead. Herodotus also points out the respect she held with Xerxes, but this seems to be a result of her performance in Xerxes' invasion. There is no reference to her during Darius's reign. Something I find interesting though in this scene is where Artemisia comes to Darius with the heads of other rulers. The historical records do not have her doing this act, but it seems to be drawing on when Darius first came to power. He had defeated the so-called pretender on the throne, but then had to defeat various other men claiming to rule their regions before re-establishing the empire. This can be found in Herodotus' account, as well on the rock face, Abihistun, an inscription Darius had completed. 
So it seems in Artemisia, we have the stereotype of the powerful woman in the Persian court, all embodied within her character, while also drawing on the reputation given to her in Herodotus' account, though taking it beyond what is reported. After all, we never hear of her being given command over the entire fleet at any stage, just the contingents she was responsible for. We now approach the first naval battle scene of the film, but first we see the preparations Themistocles is making with his Athenians on the shore of Euboea. We're given the impression that the engagement at Artemisium had been planned out, with land forces having been arranged for the second day. We also hear of the Greeks only having just over 50 ships and the Persians referred to as having thousands. Artemisia is then shown as sending her ships against the Greeks with them reacting to the Persians' advance. Artemisia then retorts, look at their excuse for a navy. The sources that we have do not give us the impression that the Greeks had a clear preconceived plan of battle for the engagement at Artemisium. They probably wouldn't have envisaged that the battle would last multiple days. Herodotus's and Plutarch's writing give us the impression of the Greeks reacting to the developments unfolding before them, as there was much discussion of withdrawing before the start of the battle, as the vast numbers of Persian ships had come somewhat as a surprise. Also, they were reacting to news of the Persian detachment being sent to try and attack them in the rear. Even if the Greeks had a clear plan for the Battle of Artemisium, which we don't hear about, it would have quickly changed. To paraphrase the German military commander, Helmut von Molke the Elder, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Regarding the numbers of ships given in the film, the Persian numbers are over-exaggerated, while the Greeks underrepresented of what is found in the sources, who themselves are accused of doing the same to the figures. Herodotus gives figures on all the different contingents fighting on the Greek side, ending up with a total figure of 271 ships. Though the film is also implying the Athenians to be the only Greeks at Artemisium, even so, the figure given on record for the triremes the Athenians manned was 127. We're even told that there were 10 ships there from Sparta, who we are told in the film were being convinced by Themistocles to join them and had not yet come to the party. For the Persians, Herodotus tells us that 1,207 ships, not including transport ships, set out on the campaign. This figure has thought to be too high by modern historians, though it is unclear if Herodotus thought that all of these took part in the battle but as we can see, is a far cry from the thousands that the film suggests. And finally, just before the battle commences, the comment Artemisia makes, look at their excuse for a navy, seems to be lifted straight out of Herodotus' histories, when he says, When the officers and men of Xerxes' fleet saw the Greeks moving to the attack with such a small force, they thought they were mad and at once got underway themselves, in confident expectation of making an easy capture. So the first day of Artemisium is about to begin, and Themistocles gives a motivating speech to his men, invoking Greek freedom. During his speech, we are shown the scenes of Persian oarsmen rowing their ships while being chained to their oars, contrasting the two sides. As the Persians advance, they are shown to be riding monstrous waves while a storm is about. We then see the Greeks in a circular formation, with Themistocles reminding his men, Persian ships are strong at the front, but weak in the centre. He then gives the signal for the Greeks to turn and row towards the Persian ships, where they now begin ramming them. He is also heard saying, go through them. This contrast between the Greek freedom and the Persian slavery was a theme dealt with in our last look at 300. Again, this is a Greek story being narrated by a Spartan, 
So it would be expected that the propaganda of the Greek freedom fighting against Persian subjugation would shine through on a grand level. This theme comes up over and over in this film also. As I said in the first 300 episode, the ancient sources can also be seen to be contrasting this freedom against the Persian tyrannical rule. The opening stages of the battle show the Persians making the initial advance onto the Greeks, but it seems to be the other way around in the sources. The Persians were surprised to see such a small force advancing on them, and in their contempt for them, they went out to meet them. With regards to the rough seas and storms that are depicted in just about all the naval scenes, reality would be quite different. If a storm was about, and seas rough, both sides would not have deployed their fleets, as they would have taken far more losses from the conditions rather than the enemy, as the trireme was quite an unstable vessel. Perfect weather, with blue skies and calm scenes, would have been common for naval battles in ancient times. The formation that was depicted and taken up by the Greeks and its subsequent action seems to draw pretty closely on what Herodotus describes. At the first signal for action, the Greek squadron formed to a close circle, bows outwards, sterns to the centre. Then at the second signal, with little room for manoeuvre and laying as they were, bows to the enemy, they set to work and succeeded in capturing 30 Persian ships. Themistocles' advice to the men is also echoing what was common practice for triremes in battle. The main goal was to direct the heavy bronze ram on the front of one ship towards the weaker stern of the enemy. This would give a much greater chance of sinking or capturing the enemy's ship. Also, the Dyclus was a tactic which was roughly translated to sailing through and out. Their manoeuvre consisted of ships rowing through gaps between the enemy's ships. After the trireme successfully crossed the opponent's line, the ships would turn around and attack the susceptible sides of the opponent's vessel. Though, it would appear that the Greeks, with their formation, were attempting to guard against the Persians employing this tactic on them. With the battle having been fought, the Greeks are shown as victorious for the first day back on shore. Themistocles saying, not bad for a group of farmers. This being a reference to the Athenian fighting men being militia, soldiering being their secondary function, unlike the Spartan hoplites. There is also talk of being prepared for the next day's action, with the preparations they had made in advance being referred to. Though as we have seen, the Greeks were reacting to developments as the Battle of Artemisium unfolded. And as we will see, the second day of battle would unfold very differently in the sources to what is seen in the film. On the Persian side, the commander who had been responsible for the first day's failure is then executed. We don't hear of any executions taking place on the Persian side at Artemisium in our sources, though Herodotus does report some Phoenician commanders being executed at Salamis for failing in their duties, while trying to blame others for their failure. We also hear of threats of execution at Thermopylae in Diodorus's account, where he says, if they, the Persians, should storm the approaches, he, Xerxes, would give them notable gifts, but if they fled, the punishment would be death. So we can see that the accounts do talk of executions for poor performance taking place and would appear to be the inspiration of the punishment dished out at Artemisium. But again, we need to keep in mind all the scenes with Artemisia have a heavy dose of artistic license, since we don't hear about her involvement until the Battle of Salamis, and with just a vague reference to Artemisium, where Herodotus has her saying, I, whose courage and achievements in the battles at Euboea were surpassed by none. But I guess this can also let the film's creators' minds run wild to attempt to fill in the details. The second day of battle now dawns, and Artemisia sends in another of her generals to complete the task of the previous failure. 
As the Persian fleet approaches, the Greeks begin to backwater, seeing their ships disappear into the mist. This backing of water is found in the description Herodotus gives, but when talking about the Battle of Salamis. Instead of disappearing into the mist, they then change their direction and row at the Persians. The film then shows the Persians being lured into a trap, with many of the Persian ships now smashing into the cliffs and rocks of a narrow strait. From here, the Greek land forces that had been arranged earlier now attack jumping from the cliffs onto the Persian ships, where another stylized fight scene develops. The fight on the second day here seems to be far more eventful than what really took place. Where the Persians, waiting for news of their flanking force, do not take up positions to challenge the Greeks. The Greeks, seeing a chance for another quick victory, attack Persian patrols in the afternoon, so as to avoid a decisive engagement. Though perhaps the depiction of the Persians crashing into the cliffs is tying into another event that took place that day. The night before the second day of battle saw another storm brew up, which would wipe out the Persians sent to flank the Greeks. News of their destruction arrived on the second day, and we might be seeing this merged into the engagement in the Straits. I also wonder if at a stretch the land forces that attack on the second day are representing the reinforcements that are reported in the sources. Herodotus telling us 50 more Athenian ships arrived. Eventually the Persian attacking forces defeated, with the second day's fighting brought to an end with the killing of the Persian commander in charge of the attacking force. Artemisia is then heard saying, you see how Themistocles employs deception with such grace. This being a reference to the events he is involved in, and how he, as a figure, is represented in just about all the sources that talk of him. Once back on shore at the Greek side, on the evening of the second day's battle, a small rowboat is seen approaching. A Persian commander has come ashore to extend an invitation to Themistocles to meet Artemisia. Themistocles accompanies the Persian and is taken to Artemisia's ship. Here again, we have an event that is taking what is in the historical record and stretching it somewhat. Artemisia's attention here was to lure Themistocles to the Persian side to fight by her side, where we then get an intense sex scene develop and Themistocles refuses the offer to betray the Greeks. What we see actually reported that this scene seems to be drawing upon are missions that Sinecus, Themistocles' most trusted servant, was sent on. The first time was when the Greek fleet was at Salamis, and Themistocles was attempting to draw the Persians into a fight to keep the Greek fleet intact as they were on the verge of dispersing. Sicinus is supposed to have rowed over to the Persian shore, where he delivers a message that looked if Themistocles was aiding Xerxes. The second time was where again Sinecus was used by his master Themistocles to deliver a message regarding the Greeks' desire to destroy the bridges at the Hellespont. This took place after the Battle of Salamis, where Xerxes was looking to withdraw with some of his forces. Here, Sicinus is meant to have sailed across into Attica with some others delivering the message. These episodes have been treated with some scepticism, in particular regarding the last mission. Nevertheless, they can be found in the historical sources and appear to have provided some inspiration for the scene in the film. I think we might leave day two here as we still have much more to cover. Overall though, for a day of battle that only takes up a few lines in the ancient accounts, a fair bit of inspiration has been taken from other events surrounding the naval battles. We now see Artemisia means business after the first two days of piecemeal attacks. The Persian ships now move in en masse, with a particularly large ship spewing oil into the sea. Artemisia also orders that her personal guard be sent in, where we see men diving into the sea swimming towards the Greek ships with oil-filled backpacks. We also now see the fantasy-type creatures that we saw in the first 300 mil, 
such as the ogres. With the battle joined, oil amongst the ships and frogmen climbing onto the Greek ships, Persians now begin launching various types of blazing missiles at the Greek ships. In this scene we also see Scyllius hit with arrows being fired by Artemisia, and he will later die on shore after the battle. The climax of the battle now has the Greek triremes being engulfed in flames, while the ship that Themistocles is aboard is blown up as one of the oil-carrying frogmen is struck with a flaming arrow. We are then taken underwater with Themistocles where he sees large sea monsters preying on the men in the sea. One of the creatures notices him, but then he wakes up on shore with the battle over. The Greeks are shown as having suffered huge losses and it implied that the Persians had won the day's fighting for the third day. We also now get the sense of despair on the Greek shore, with it particularly focused on Themistocles. Our ancient sources do indicate that this day would be the largest engagement of the battle, with the Persians taking the initiative this time around. Herodotus seems to be indicating that the whole Persian fleet was employed as they moved in attempting to surround the Greek fleet awaiting their approach. As for all the oil and fire in the scene, there are no accounts of anything of the sort taking place. It would appear that this is drawing upon the weapon known as Greek fire, which was used for the first time over a thousand years later. Though having said that, I think the Persian frogmen have taken inspiration from Herodotus telling us a story he had heard. A deserter from the Persian side apparently swam underwater without coming up for air, where he brought news of the Persian detachment that had been sent to flank their position earlier in the battle. The sea monsters we see are left as an ambiguous element, with it unclear if they were there in Themistocles' unconscious mind. Herodotus gives us a reference to sea monsters, though when talking of the Persian fleet disaster 12 years earlier, and when they were caught in a storm at Mount Athos. He says, The sea in the neighbourhood of Athos is full of monsters, so that those of the ship's companies who were not dashed to pieces on the rocks were seized and devoured. The scene being shown as a massive Greek defeat, with all hope fading, seems to be stretching the historical reality a little. It is true that we hear that the Greeks suffered badly on the third day, but we also hear that the Persians had a much tougher time of it. Though due to the result of the engagement, the Athenians wanted to fall back. Although the Persians took heavier casualties, they could afford it, while the Greeks could not hope to win a battle of attrition. You can probably see so far, many of the elements depicted seem to be found in the historical record, somewhere but with much looser connections than what we found with the first 300 film. To help add to the desperate position the Greeks are in after the third day at Artemisium, we are then taken to Thermopylae to see the Persians marching through the pass, with all the dead Spartans in the foreground. Xerxes hands Ephialtes Leonidas's sword and tells him to take it to Athens with the message he is coming to raise their city to the ground. The framing of the third day at Artemisium with the fall at Thermopylae also ties in with what the ancient sources tell us. The fall of Thermopylae also took place on the third day of engagements there, with Herodotus saying, it so happened that these battles at sea took place on the same days as the Battle of Thermopylae. Though after Ephialtes' betrayal of the Greek position at Thermopylae, he does not enter the story again, like here in the film. Back on the shore at Artemisium, Daxos, who represented the leader of the other Greeks at Thermopylae, rides up to Themistocles to bring the news of the fall of the pass. Themistocles now has some life injected back into him as he sees their sacrifice as being the event that will unite all of Greece. He tells Daxos to spread the news to all the Greek cities he passes through while he will take the news back to Athens. He also orders that the Athenian fleet move back to the safety of Salamis. 
Here, the depiction stands on fairly solid ground as a messenger arrived at Artemisium to deliver the news of the defence of Thermopylae being overcome. But the sources make it clear that there were two men who were in command of a galley each. Their role was to keep communications open with their respective Greek positions. Ambronicus was in command of the galley that was stationed at Thermopylae and would sail to Artemisium to inform the Greeks of the bad news. This notion of the sacrifice of men at Thermopylae uniting the Greeks to resist the Persians seems to develop as a popular line after the war, with the hindsight of the Greek victory over the invasion. Throughout most of the campaign, the Greeks would struggle to unite and individual city-states would argue for strategy that tended to favour their cities rather than all of Hellas. Also, it is hard to ignore that out of all the Greek city-states, only 31 would make up the Hellenic League that would defend Greece. Almost as many or more would fight and assist on the side of the Persians. The Greeks would indeed make their way back to Salamis after withdrawing from Artemisium, though this doesn't appear to be the initial plan. Greek reinforcements had been collecting off Troezen on the Peloponnese, this looking to be the most likely location for the fleet to fall back to. Though, apparently at the request of the Athenians and a plea from the city, the fleet would alter its course to Salamis, so that the Athenian ships could evacuate their citizens across Salamis before the Persians arrived. Herodotus also indicates that the Athenians had expected the Peloponnesians to have marched north. With no army developing north of the Isthmus, they were also looking to find the next safe harbour where they could discuss their next moves. We need to remember that it wasn't just Athens in the fleet at Artemisium, like what the film suggests, but many of the city-states who made up the Hellenic League were part of this fleet. Themistocles arrives back in Athens, where Ephialtes has brought Leonidas' sword. He passes on Xerxes' intention of destroying Athens once his army reaches it. Ephialtes, wallowing in his shameful betrayal, is expecting to be executed by Themistocles but he spares his life, telling him to go back to Xerxes and tell him the Greeks are gathering at Salamis. As we saw in the episode on 300, the last action we are aware of from the sources to do with Ephialtes is when he accompanied the immortals on the path to outflank the position at Thermopylae. Then we only hear of him after the war, when he now attempted to flee his hometown to avoid answering for his crimes. So seeing him at Athens is not something we can find in our sources, I feel the message Themistocles sends Ephialtes back to Xerxes with is drawing from his bruise that he would play at Salamis. The Greeks were just about ready to split off and go their own separate ways. So Themistocles came up with a plan to try and keep the Greek fleet united and challenge the Persians. At Salamis, he informed Xerxes, through Sicinus, of the Greeks' planned departure, hoping it would force him to act and bring the Persians into the straits. And here in the film, we are seeing him making the Persians fully aware of the Greeks' position. We also find in most of our sources that Themistocles' time back in Athens was spent in assisting evacuating its citizens and convincing those wanting to stay to leave. Back in the film, Themistocles then travels to Sparta, where he meets with Gorgo, who has learnt of her husband, Leonidas's death. He seeks the aid of Sparta in reinforcing the Greek fleet at Salamis and uniting all of Greece. Gorgo rebuffs Themistocles, as the idea of a united Greece has cost her and Sparta greatly. Themistocles, before leaving, hands Leonidas' sword over, urging her to avenge him, this looking to appeal to the Spartan warrior society mentality instead. We don't have an account of Themistocles travelling to Sparta during the naval battles. We only hear of him going there after the victory at Salamis and to be honoured for his role. The scene's purpose is to present the plea for the Spartans to send their fleet to Salamis and join in the defence there. 
As we have said before, the Spartans were already with the fleet, and had fought at Artemisium, and had withdrawn with the rest of the fleet to Salamis. So there was no need to convince Gorgo to send the Spartan fleet to help out in the defence of Greece. Also something I brought up briefly earlier, was the fact that the Greek fleet was already under the command of a Spartan, as it was. Eurybiades had been put in command of the fleet before the second Persian invasion began. He wasn't one of the kings, as only one could be on campaign at a time. Back in Sparta would have been the second king Leotychides, which also raises the issue that Gorgo would not have been the person one would have sought when seeking an audience. At a stretch, I guess we can see later pleas for the Spartans to stay united or to unite in the ancient accounts, when hearing about the contingents deciding what to do at Salamis, and also later in the campaign before the Battle of Plataea, when the Athenians are trying to convince the Spartans to march north. At Salamis, the contingents from the Peloponnese were arguing to leave Salamis and sail back to their homelands to mount a defence there. There would be much debate, and Themistocles would resort to the action involving Sicinus that we brought up earlier to prevent this from taking place. Before Plataea, the Spartans remained in the Peloponnese behind a defensive wall at Corinth, even after assurances that they would march north. We hear of multiple delegations being sent to Sparta to get them to act, which they finally would. But as I've said, there was no need for this to take place before Salamis, since the Spartans were already there, with one of them in command of the entire Greek fleet. We're now brought back to the scene of Athens being sacked, and which the film had in the opening sequence. We already covered the issue about Xerxes standing on the burning Acropolis with Leonidas's head, but we are now showing the rest of the slaughter taking place, and the extent of the destruction, with the toppling of the statue of Athena to cap things off. The destruction taking place seems pretty consistent with what can be found in the sources, with Herodotus' account probably painting the most vivid picture. He first has the Persians arriving and laying siege to the Acropolis, where they are then able to undermine the wooden palisade and eventually breach the walls of the Acropolis. He then describes what took place. When the Athenians saw them on the summit, some leapt from the wall to their deaths. Others sought sanctuary in the inner shrine of the temple. But the Persians who had got up first made straight for the gates, flung them open and slaughtered those in the sanctuary, having left not one of them alive. They stripped the temples of its treasures and burnt everything on the Acropolis. The toppling of the statue of Athena although not specifically mentioned, provides a good metaphor for the taking of the city that was dedicated to her. We then now see Xerxes sitting on a throne and deliberating with Artemisia while the ruins of Athens are still smouldering. Ephiotes makes an appearance to inform Xerxes of the Greeks at Salamis, which also reveals to Artemisia that Themistocles is still alive. This sees her wanting to attack the Greeks at once with the entire fleet. Xerxes, though, advises a probing force should be sent instead. Artemisia now challenges Xerxes' authority in the matters of war and reminds him how he came to be sitting on the throne. The scene then ends with Artemisia walking away with it pretty obvious she will be attacking the Greeks as she wishes. This scene is setting up for the showdown between Artemisia and Themistocles, with her learning of his survival. Though, this betrayal is very different to what is presented in the sources, and it is not Artemisia's thirst for revenge that motivates the Battle of Salamis. Having said that, there are a couple of historical references that are being used in the scene, though, that we can take a look at. Although we don't hear any more about Ephialtes after Thermopylae, he seems to be representing the news of the Greeks' position and a sort of, here we are, come and get us, which we will find in the account where Themistocles sends his servant, Sicinus, 
with this message to encourage the Persians to attack the Greeks at the Straits. We also hear that Artemisia was able to put forward a suggestion before Salamis on how the Persians should deal with the Greeks. This was not directly to Xerxes, but through one of his generals, though she would get a private audience with him after the battle on her opinions on how to proceed. Artemisia in the historical record is shown to advise against attacking the Greeks at sea, but allowing time for their fractured unity to break apart and then attack them on land. Xerxes was in fact the one who decided that the naval battle would take place, and all of his contingent commanders had suggested this course. Artemisia was the only one to advise against it. Back with Themistocles at Salamis, he is talking to the other Athenians looking at the fire on the horizon coming from Athens. He is still holding out hope that the Spartans will come to their aid, but it seems his men are not sure with them blaming him for the position they are in. We see Themistocles in his lowest point of the film, telling his men that he had failed them, but is determined to still fight. He allows anyone not wanting to stay with him to leave if they wish, which sees him move into a motivational speech, including some words that I think are very important from the historical record's point of view. A story that will be told for a thousand years, let our final stand be recorded to the histories. None of his men abandoned their position, and they now set out to engage the Persians. Again, how the film presents this scene is not found in the sources, but we can still find some accounts that have been used to draw inspiration from, to tell the story as they do here. For starters, I have pointed out a number of times that the Athenians were not at Artemisium and Salamis alone. Other Greeks plus the Spartans were also there, though the accounts do show that the decision to fight Salamis was divided, with the Peloponnesian contingents wanting to head back to the Peloponnese and the others wanting to make a stand at Salamis. We also see at one time in Horus' account where it seems Themistocles is at a loss with what to do, but not for the reason shown in the film. He instead is almost in a state of despair after a meeting of Greek commanders on Salamis, and it's seeming like the Peloponnesians have made a decision that they would sail home. The words that Themistocles uses in his motivational speech are now drawing upon Herodotus directly and what he announces as the purpose of his work, and by extension, what history would come to do for others since he was the father of history. Herodotus in his opening lines of his history says, Herodotus of Halicarnassus here displays his inquiry so that human achievements may not be forgotten in time and great and marvellous deeds, some displayed by Greeks, some by barbarians, may not be without their glory and especially to show why these two people fought each other. Also, seeing the Athenians heading out to meet the Persian fleet does not align with the account of how the Battle of Salamis opened, but let's get to this issue as we look at the next scene, which is the actual battle itself. Now we get to the final scene of the movie and the Battle of Salamis. Beginning this scene, we see the small Athenian fleet of six ships heading towards the Persian lines of hundreds of triremes. Xerxes is seen from a clifftop overlooking his vast fleet as the Greeks approach, while Artemisia is aboard her ship leading the battle. If you have been following along with what we have covered so far and listened to the last three episodes, you would have seen that in reality the Greeks had been in discussion on Salamis for days regarding what action they were going to take. There were far more than six Athenian triremes at Salamis, and far more than just the Athenians present. Herodotus records that the Greeks had 378 ships at Salamis, though if we add up the contingent numbers he gives, we end up with 371. I wonder if the ships that fled after hearing of Athens' sacking that Herodotus reports accounts for the difference in numbers. One thing in this scene that can be found in the sources 
is Xerxes taking up a position on the hilltops to overlook the straits and the battle. Herodotus is also saying he had scribes present with him so as to record who distinguished themselves in battle. The Greeks now close with the Persian line and the battle begins with ships ramming and being rammed. With the ships now tangled with one another, the Greeks start boarding the Persian ships and fight hand to hand. Themistocles now jumps on the back of a horse which had been prepared for him below deck and jumps from ship to ship fighting on horseback. He then sees Artemisia and makes his way towards her ship when he is unhorsed and fights off her personal guard. Themistocles and Artemisia now duel it out until finally they come to a stalemate with swords at each other's throats. The film has the opening moves of the battle unfolding differently to how we read about them in the ancient accounts. Herodotus reports that the Persians made the first move and had entered the straits by morning, forming a crescent formation around the Greek position. The Greeks then began backing water, bringing their ships almost up onto the shore, until finally getting underway to where their battle was joined. Though with Plutarch we can see him hinting at the initiative laying with Themistocles, but his account of the battle was very vague and lacking detail. As for Themistocles on horseback, I don't think we really need to point out this is a creation of the film, and not found in the sources. When it comes to Artemisia being spotted, events in the histories don't portray what is shown on scene, but we can probably see what Herodotus reports about her coming through. It was known that she was serving in the Persian fleet, and it was resented that Artemisia, being a Greek, and especially a woman, would oppose the Greeks. Apparently a bounty had been placed on her for a capture. We even hear that when being pursued in battle, she had rammed another Persian ship to make her escape. This then saw a pursuer break off the chase, thinking, her ship was either actually a Greek ship or had defected to their side. But we don't hear of her engaging any hand-to-hand combat with anyone, especially Themistocles. The Ionians were deployed on the opposite end of that of the Athenians. We do hear of events that would suggest Ionian ships and Athenians did engage, though remember the film here only represents six Athenian ships against the Persians at this stage. It's now with the Athenians in a hopeless position that Greek ships can be seen on the horizon making their way to the Persian lines. Gorgo is at the head of the reinforcing fleet with the ships dropping their sails, revealing the distinctive Spartan Lombarda. Themistocles then says to Artemisia, All of Greece has united against you, Delphi, Thebes, Olympia, Arcadia and Sparta. Artemisia refuses to surrender and Themistocles is forced to kill her. The Greek reinforcements now start ramming the Persian line and the marines flood onto the Persian ships, engaging in close quarters fighting. Gorgo is seen cutting down Persians before meeting up with Themistocles, where they both joined forces, symbolising Greek unity, before then leading the Greeks against the rest of the Persian force. Then the credits roll. So here we go again. The Spartans and other Greeks did not come charging over the horizon to save the day by joining the Athenians at Salamis. As we have said a number of times, there were some 378 Greek triremes lined up to take part in the Battle of Salamis from many Greek city-states. In all, 31 polis and islands would take an active part in the defence of Greece against the Persians. As for Gorgo leading the reinforcing fleet, we do not hear about her in the historical record after Leonidas's death. The leadership in Sparta would have rested with the king, Leotychides, and the regent, Cleombrotus, who was acting as regent for Leonidas's son at this stage. Also, the ephors, who were the council of elders, would have also performed much of the decision-making in Sparta. The Spartans, as well as the entire Hellenic League fleet, already had a commander, 
As we already pointed out earlier, the Spartan Eurybiades had been placed as the overall commander of the fleet before Xerxes' forces had marched into Greece. We have also touched on the Labarda being used as the Spartan symbol when looking at 300. There I pointed out that the first time we can perhaps attribute it to being used was during the Peloponnesian War, over a generation later. When Themistocles rattles off the names of some of the cities that had united against Persia, he includes one that a casual reading of the Greek and Persian wars would have raised one's eyebrow at. That is, Thebes. All of the ancient sources make it pretty clear that Thebes was one of the largest city-states in Greece that had Medes and assisted Persia all throughout the campaign. Even after Salamis, they would be one of the largest contributors in Greece of men and supplies at the Battle of Plataea a year later. Lastly, to finish up the scene and the film, let's deal with the death of Artemisia herself before we end the episode looking at the themes of freedom and Greek unity. Artemisia was not killed at the Battle of Salamis, though a number of Persian commanders who had higher leadership roles than she did were, including one of Xerxes' brothers. We have already addressed that she was not in command of the entire Persian fleet, but just a contingent from the region around Halicarnassus. In Herodotus' histories, we hear more about her when Xerxes asked for advice on a proposal put forward by the Persian commander Mardonius. Then when Xerxes decides to make his way back to the empire, Artemisia is trusted with accompanying his children back across the Aegean to the Ionian coast. Artemisia would return to Halicarnassus and continue to rule as queen or tyrant until her death in 460 BC, 20 years after the Battle of Salamis. The movie 300 Rise of an Empire ends with Gorgo and Themistocles joining together and then taking on the Persian forces, representing a united Greece which Themistocles had been seeking throughout the film. This also shows freedom conquering an outside power coming to enslave them, with their cooperation in banding together to protect their individual freedoms. Granted, we find many passages in the ancient sources that show the Greeks are extremely proud of their freedom and disgust at becoming enslaved to an outside power. Though, the Greeks had slaves too. In fact, only a small portion of city-states' populations were considered citizens, with full rights. There were other peoples that were considered free, but without voting rights, and unable to hold public positions. While then, there was a large proportion of people who were considered slaves. For the most part, throughout Greece, slaves were non-Greek, and we hear especially regarding Athens that the practice of Greeks being reduced to slavery was outlawed, under Solon also known as the shaking off of burdens. Though we have one big exception to the rule here. We brought this up in the last 300 episode, and this revolves around the Spartans' idea of freedom when they themselves enslaved large populations of Greeks. Their economy was built on their helot system, which saw them not only defending their way of life, and as they saw it, their freedoms against invaders, but they had to also worry about the threats from within their borders. So when talking of Greek freedoms, we are talking of a small portion of the populations that were considered citizens, who had a say in their city's direction to some degree. The rest of the people living in Greece were along for the ride. The idea of a united Greece is also at the forefront of the film. It is true that the Hellenic League was a response to bring together those city-states wanting to resist Xerxes' invasion. Though the film, although not depicting the Hellenic League as it's presented in the ancient sources, seems to infer that the goal was to create a united Greece to challenge the Persians, which is eventually achieved in the final scene. To put it mildly, this is a massive oversimplification of the reality. The Greek city-states were for the most part individual political entities, and before the Persian invasion, they had many more quarrels with each other rather than with foreign powers, 
though the coming together of the city-states to cooperate in diplomacy or war can also be seen. This would be done against other Greek city-states or foreign powers. It was a matter of the threat that was faced and the interests of the aligning polis. The creation of United Greece never seems to be an idea pushed until much later in Greek history. Another interesting point is out of the thousand-odd Greek city-states and islands, only 31 would come together to unite in what we would call the Hellenic League. More Greek city-states and islands would assist and even fight on the Persian side, while many more would stay on the sidelines waiting to see how things would play out. So for United Greece to occur, there would need to be many more Greek city-states cooperating. The reality of the situation makes this the Greek and Persian wars only due to the fact was invading into geographical Greece. The makeup of the forces makes this title quite generalised. Describing the Hellenic League as a united Greek force is also somewhat of an oversimplification, as there were multiple times where individual city-state circumstances were driving their policies and motivations within the League. This would see the League become very unstable throughout Xerxes' invasion and almost break apart on a number of occasions. I think the reality of the League was down to the fact that a larger threat had been identified that came from outside Greek lands. The cities that made up the Hellenic League had enough mutual general interests to come together to oppose the threat, but had to deal with their own personal interests within the League's environments. They still had different governing systems and economical considerations which would make it difficult for them to agree on the same path forward. After all, there was still the future to think of once the Persian threat was defeated domestic rivalries would return, and no one wanted to be in a weak position. As the series continues and we move past the Greek and Persian wars, we will start to see and delve into the interactions that would take place within Greece and where it would lead history. I think I'll wrap up the episode here, but as you can probably see, there is much within the film that can be discussed. I decided to skip over some elements, otherwise this episode would have blown out much more than it already has. I found there was much more in this movie as opposed to 300 that required the historical record to be stretched, so more explanation required to see how it fits into the storyline. Though, I trust if you have been listening to the series, you would have picked up on many of the issues with how 300 Rise of an Empire presents the events. We will be picking back up our narrative of the Greek and Persian Wars next episode, where we will look at the aftermath of the Battle of Salamis, and how the Greco-Persian War will continue into the next year. Thank you for your continued support. If you have been enjoying the series, please consider leaving a review at iTunes or your favourite podcast platform. They go a long way to supporting the show. To receive updates and be notified of new episodes, you can subscribe at castingthroughancientgreece.com. Also, you can follow the series on Facebook and Instagram at Casting Through Ancient Greece or on Twitter at Casting Greece. I hope you can join me next time for episode 26, The War Continues.